Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm talking with Todd Winning. He's a professional investor and writer. He publishes the Flyover Stocks newsletter, which focuses on high-quality businesses with economic moats and shareholder-friendly management. He has extensive writing experience through various blogs, such as The Motley Fool. He's notably worked at Morningstar, where he covered a variety of different companies, industries, and sectors. He's also a CFA charter holder, and he's very much a Buffett-style investor with a focus on quality. Welcome to the podcast, Todd. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So how'd you first get interested in investing? It was sort of by accident. I have distant memories of being maybe 10 or 11 years old and was interested in computer games. This was the early days of computer games, so early 90s. And I remember my uncle, who was interested in stocks, showing me the stock charts and saying, oh, this is where Sierra Online, this is their ticker symbol. If anybody remembers that, if you're under the age of, say, 30, you don't remember Sierra Online. But if you're 40 or over like I am, you definitely do. But so that was really the first taste of investing that I ever had. But in terms of becoming a professional investor, I didn't really have any interest in it until after I graduated college. And even then, it was kind of because I got a job in the industry. I graduated with a history degree from St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia and was started looking for jobs after college. And when you're a history major, you start thinking, well, what can I do? And I started looking at the law, started looking at teaching, you know, both the liberal arts application of the law, but also I really enjoy teaching. But then a friend of mine said, hey, you should apply for Vanguard. And I didn't even know what Vanguard was. It was a company based in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. So maybe 10 miles from where I graduated from St. Joe's. And I applied for an entry-level job there as a registered representative. And they must have liked my undergraduate GPA and the fact that I worked on the phone in the admissions office at St. Joseph's and said, yeah, well, we'll take a chance on you. So they brought me on and I thought, well, I could do this for a couple of years, learn how to manage my money and then go back to law school or something like that. And one thing led to another. And I just found that I really enjoyed investing. There's just the learning never ends, as you know, and you can always learn new things, not just from business or investing, but from pretty much any discipline. Go to the art museum and learn something. You can go read philosophy and apply it to your approach. And I just, as a liberal arts major, I absolutely love that aspect of investing. And so that just got the ball rolling into the professional investing world. But it wasn't something that I grew up with. It wasn't something that was talked around the dining room table. I'm a first generation investor, I guess you could say. So this was very much born of a professional enterprise. Nice. And you mentioned you played video games in the uh, computer games in the 90s. I did the same thing. Did you play Ultima 7? No, I didn't play Ultima 7. I was very much <laughs> into the Sierra games, like King's Quest, those okay. games, and Heroes of Might and Magic, all those games I, back then. I remember that one. Yeah, that was good. Uh, yeah, those are classics. So you kind of fell into a couple different camps back then. And I was very much a Sierra player. I loved all those games and Martian Memoranda. I remember that one. There's some really cool old games. I have a lot of nostalgia for those. Yeah. And then they'd always come with like 10 floppy disks and you had to, it was like an hour long process to install it. <laughs> That's right. And it was like a hundred megabytes or something, you know, it took like five hours to install. Yeah. It's uh, it's definitely different today. Yeah. Good times. So you worked at Vanguard. 
So were you drawn to the kind of church of Jack Bogle and passive investing? I mean, you're an active investor today. How how'd that transition go? I said before that I don't think there's a better place to start your career than Vanguard to start with the principles of transparency, integrity, thinking about the shareholder, thinking about costs and fees and diversification. It's absolutely the best place for me, at least, to have started my career. And I would always encourage people to who are interested in the field who don't have a background in it to do the same, because I really do think it's a wonderful place to start. And you at least have an understanding of what your alternatives are. You can always index if you feel like you don't have an edge anymore, or if you don't feel like you have valuable insights, you can always index and focus on other things in life. I really enjoy the process of investing. I enjoy the art, the craft, the pursuit of those things. And I've come to appreciate that. I feel like I have a good understanding of how to analyze businesses, how to value them. And I just enjoy the process. And so I think if you're an investor out there and you're not a professional, you don't do this full time, there's no harm in indexing a part of your investments and focusing on just a few companies at a time. I really do think it depends on how much time you have to not only learn investing, but also to practice it and follow it, do the research necessary to do it. Yeah, I totally agree. Personally, I have some money that's indexed and then I have my active money. So I definitely can relate to that advice. Yep. What's your current process? How do you go about finding companies? How do you go about investing in companies, researching them? How would you describe what you're looking for? So the first thing I look for when I'm analyzing a company, and everybody has a different approach, but for me, I'm looking for evidence of a moat. And usually you might look at some financials and say, wow, this company's been generating double digit returns on invested capital for the past decade or the past five years. They're doing something. So is that cyclical or is it secular? Then start digging in and trying to understand what is it about this company that provides them with an unfair advantage that allows them to generate these outsized returns. Because as we know, in capitalism, if you have an attractive business and you're doing quite well, if there's no barriers to entry, someone is going to come in and take down your returns on invested capital to cost of capital or lower. So companies that are able to sustainably generate those high returns on invested capital are doing something. So I feel like it's my job as an investor to figure out what that is. I think that a sustainable advantage. And that leads into moat analysis, trying to understand the source of that economic moat, whether it's a low cost advantage, a differentiation advantage, whatever it might be. And then looking at management, that's the next step is thinking, how is management allocating capital to reinforce this moat and to widen it over time and to make sure that business continues to grow? And so management analysis is really the next step. Once I have a good understanding of the moat and management, then I take a look at, at valuation. Now, sometimes valuation leads me to an idea, but often I'm, I'm trying to find the business first. And then I try to figure out, okay, is this business a high quality business and something I want to own for the long term? And then one of the benefits of doing moat analysis and having some confidence in its ability to return, to generate high returns on invested capital and generate sustainable cash flows over the long term is uh, that helps you value companies more confidently. So if the company doesn't have a moat and it's very cyclical, it becomes a lot more difficult to forecast that business, any degree of confidence over the next five, 10 years and beyond. And so if you are aiming to be a long-term investor, you don't want to try to guess where price of copper or something is going to be in the next quarter. You want to find a business that's continued to grow stronger 
over cycles, not one that's just going to respond to the cycles and it has very little control over how much economic profit it produces in a given year. Now, what kind of moats do you look for? Like there's various types of moats that have been defined, like network effects is one, scale is another. Are you open to all sources of moats or are there certain types of moats that you prefer? So coming from Morningstar, there's the core five that I work from, and that's intangible assets, switching costs, network effect, low cost producer, and efficient scale. Those are the five that general frameworks that I look for and kind of put them in one of those five buckets. But there's also advantages that perhaps don't fit into one of those, or it's not a clear addition to one of those. So for example, I do think that corporate culture is something that is a competitive advantage and is durable. There are certain companies that do things a certain way that no matter how much capital you invest, you're going to have a very hard time replicating what they do in a reasonable amount of time. When people think about corporate culture, they might think about Google where people are riding around on scooters and getting free lunch and things like that. But that's not necessarily what culture is and where that could be an advantage. And one of the things is, if another company can't replicate it, then that's a moat. So if you're a startup, you can just buy a bunch of scooters and give everybody free lunch and say that's culture. And it's really not. I mean, there has to be a shared mission and it can be in any industry, not just tech. It can be in industrials or it can be in consumer that separates that business from other ones. And there's something about it that is very difficult to replicate. It supports their moat. And I think that key thing is figuring out how the culture reinforces the moat. One of the companies that I've owned for a long time in my personal portfolio is a UK company called Admiral Group, and they're an auto insurer, among other things. The best way I think about them is kind of the, the Geico of the UK, very low cost. And one of the things that really impressed me was I went out to visit them in Cardiff, they're in Wales, and just the culture reinforces that cost savings mode. They're very particular about saving every penny they possibly can. And that really stuck with me. And then when they opened up a US office in the US, they're called Elephant Insurance. And they're in a couple of states. I'm not sure if they're in every state in the US yet. But when they came to the US, one of the things that they did to get the American employees acclimated to their culture was they had a printer in the office. And if you wanted to use the printer, you had to do a push-up in front of the CEO's desk so that he knew you were using the printer. And so you had to justify every every piece of paper that you're spending. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So I think that culture is can be a moat in situations like that, where I could come up with a, a billion dollars and, and I could create a car insurance company, but could I replicate that moat or that culture in a way that it would be a sustainable competitive advantage that would continue to widen my cost lead over my competitors? I think that's much, much harder to do from the ground up. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. One of the companies I own where I really like their culture is Expeditors International. Like mm -hmm. I feel like they have a really good entrepreneurial oriented culture. So I agree that that can be an important source of moat. It's a hard thing to replicate. It starts with the CEO. It starts with their personality. And that usually it's the founder. And that's something that I think is really important to follow. Even if it's not currently a founder-led company, taking a look at the founder's pedigree, as I call it. So looking at Costco is a perfect example with Jim Sinegal, the founder's pedigree, that culture just continues beyond his time at the firm. Something that's very, very difficult to replicate. Yeah. So how do you think about that? A lot of these great cultures are created by a founder, but they don't always endure. How do you look at a company and try to determine 
if you know it has a good culture, but how do you try to assess how that culture can endure over time? That's a great question. I think you really have to look at who's coming up through the ranks. Ideally, you would have someone internally who has been hand-selected by the founder, someone who really believes in the culture and the process. I think, generally speaking, this isn't always the case, but I think when a company with a great culture hires from the outside, that's a yellow flag to me because the CEO leads the culture. If the company internally isn't producing enough leaders, enough candidates to become the CEO, you have to wonder if the culture isn't all it's cracked up to be. I think about Starbucks in that regard. Starbucks has had a really hard time finding a CEO who can take over from Howard Schultz, keeps coming back. <laughs> and yeah. there's to me, that's questionable. I don't know why Starbucks has such a hard time producing a CEO to, that can take the reins. Obviously, that's a very big, big job. And they've had a lot of their leaders go to other firms to become CEO. But I would like to see that company have a more consistent culture. That's always been something that's been concerning to me. So I do think you have to continue to learn about the business. And I think a great source for trying to find these grassroots culture signals is in local business journals. And you can subscribe, for example, to local business journal or something, but you can subscribe to, I think it's 50 different cities under one subscription. And these are just local business journals who are writing about companies in their area. And when you have a company that's doing something unique or different, that's usually newsworthy. And that there's usually news in the paper about things they're doing in the community or things they're doing in the office that are different. And those are great ways to do it. And obviously talking with former employees or existing employees is a way to do it too. You know, there's various interview, expert interview, things like that, sources that you can use to gauge that. But it's again, like Buffett's quote about a moat changes every day and you just don't know it until it builds upon itself in one direction or the other. And I think culture is the same way. So every day culture gets better or worse. And from the outside, it's very difficult to know. And that's a big challenge for an outside investor to really understand that deeply, because sometimes even internally, they don't know it right away. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. So looking at, you were talking about like the Morningstar Big Five sources of moats. You wrote another article recently about how network effects are kind of a weak source of moat. Did you want to elaborate on that? So I think network effects are a double-edged sword. I think when they're on their way up, they are nearly impossible to beat. And when you think about Facebook building up its network effect during that time, it's just, there's no way you're going to compete against that. And um, I have a chart in my post showing that it really took MySpace to flatline on its monthly average users for Facebook to build traction. And MySpace is a perfect example of how network effects can unwind if the service or product loses relevance. And I think that's a key thing to watch with network effects is the relevance of the underlying product. And the testament to the strength of network effects is that they can be enduring. So MySpace is still around. I think someone said they had 7 million active monthly users. No way. And yeah, it's still <laughs> kicking. There's nowhere near where it was. And even eBay. When you think about how big eBay was in the mid-90s, and if you're under 30, you probably don't remember how strong eBay was back then, but the expectations for online auctions were huge. That was very much where people went to get things online in giant flea market. And I wasn't an investor at the time and I wasn't valuing eBay, but my guess is that the expectations for eBay marketplace were just astronomical if you looked at DCF models from that time. And it just 
lost relative relevance. And so it's not that it's not relevant anymore. It's just that relative to other forms of e-commerce, it lost some of its mind share or market share. So eBay Marketplace is still a very strong business. It's just it probably fell very short of what people were expecting because the network effects weren't as strong as were expected, or at least changed direction. It doesn't take a company to become irrelevant for network effects to slow down, just become less relevant. And that's the point I was trying to make in the post was that in order for network effects to remain very strong and robust, you have to maintain a highly relevant product or service. Otherwise, they can dissipate and far short of what you're expecting. Yeah. And with eBay, you definitely had a lot of competitors emerge. I know like Craigslist was probably a major competitor. I mean, it's free. That became a really hot spot to go in and find goods quickly in your local community. And then in addition to that, now you have Facebook Marketplace. And even on Amazon, there's like an eBay element to that where you can buy used items on Amazon. So yeah, they definitely had a lot of competitors emerge. And I don't know if they responded well to that. Yeah, I know they tried a couple different strategies and it may not have anything they did or didn't do internally that caused it. It's just things changed very rapidly. As you said, there became more niche players. There became free options in a way there it wasn't before. And it's, you can't be everything to everybody. And I think that's what eBay's struggles have been. But again, from an investor standpoint, when you think through those opportunities and with companies with network effects, you have to start thinking, okay, my bear case here is that things don't materialize as I expect. What does that look like if monthly average users flatline over the next five years? What might that look like? doesn't mean that the business is irrelevant. It's just that it's less relevant. And so you have to think about what that might mean for your future margins and cash flows and growth. Do you think that there's inherently weak moats within hot new sectors, like in the tech sector? where the environment is changing so quickly, it's difficult to actually assess a moat. Do you think it's best to just avoid those types of moats? I think technology can be challenging. It doesn't come naturally to me. I'll say that as a disclosure. So technology is something that I'm not shying away from as an investor, but I really need to have a strong sense of what the underlying moat is before I feel very confident about it. So thinking about, is it switching costs? In technology, I tend to prefer situations where there are longer term contracts in place where there's higher level or high levels of recurring revenue, where I have some confidence in that top line over the next five to 10 years. And in that sense, the SaaS businesses are attractive, but there was a time where I think they got very overvalued and people took a lot of comfort in those very predictable and reliable top line and cash flow numbers. And so I think about, okay, well, What's the top line look like? What do the cash flows look like? What's the market pricing in here? And what do I think is going to happen? And how it might it be different? And so to that extent, there are clearly moats in technology. It's You have to just understand actual advantages because there's plenty of capital out there, even still, that is looking at high margin businesses and saying, how do we get a piece of that? And so you have to think, what could they do? What might they do? What do the historical numbers look like? For businesses that have been in this role before. I'm a regular user of Michael Mobison's base rate book, or you can look at the McKinsey base rate book too, thinking about how companies of a certain size and certain growth rate have performed over the next five, 10 years. There was a time where technology businesses that were pricing in historically 1% probability outcomes. And those are situations where things are probably overvalued. <laughs> and so I think as an investor in a high growth business, check your assumptions, especially in the longer term, five to 10 years out. I mean, you might have a pretty good 
set of confidence skills about the next one, three, five years, but beyond five years, a lot can happen, even with great companies. So I think you have to be deferent to the long-term base rates to think about what is the most likely outcome here. And you can base your valuation and analysis around that. Gotcha. Now, you've talked about quality primarily in terms of returns on invested capital. So do you think that return on invested capital is the most important kind of quality metric for an investor to look at? I think it's the ultimate metric you want to see. So a company can have great margins and no pat, but it depends on how much capital is being used to fuel that growth that you need to use as a metric to understand how great the business is. And the ideal is sort of capital light compounders is the phrase that's always been, I shouldn't say always, but usually tossed around among Finchwit, where thinking about trying to buy these companies that require very little capital and produce a lot of cash flow. That's the ideal. That's not always the most sustainable because there are situations where capital itself can be a barrier to entry. So you can think about the spread of return on invested capital over WAC, or you can think about the durability of return on invested capital over WAC. And sometimes companies can be both, but usually a company with a widespread over WAC eventually moves closer to WAC. And WAC is weighted average cost of capital. I think one overlooked part of the market is maybe not have a huge spread return on invested capital over WAC, but have a very durable spread. And a company like Fastenal, for example, has not always blown the doors off of on return on invested capital, but it's very durable. And so the market over time has had to readjust as it's continued to perform and beat the fade, so to say. So the fade is the expectation that eventually return on invested capital will fade to the cost of capital. And companies that can continue to push that out further, the market has to respond to that. Return on invested capital is the best way to think about how cash flow is produced. So if you had a printing machine, right, and you had $100 and you put it into the machine and it gave you your $100 back and an additional 15, that's what you're looking for. And then if, even if it costs eight, you've got 107. And then so the question is, it depends on the business, right? Can you put all of that 107 back in the printing machine and get even more? Or can you just put that 100 back, minting that the $8 spread over time? And so I think that's just how you have to think about return on invested capital and cash flows in companies that can put all of it back and continue to compound at a very high rate are, are called reinvestment modes. And those are the ones that can really grow at a high rate. And they're very rare. And most companies have some combination. So they might be able to reinvest a part of the excess back and not all of it. What's left gets paid out as dividends or used as buybacks. So to, for me, that's been the most intuitive way to think about the value and importance of return on invested capital. I like that. That's a good template to think of like this money machine that you can put money into and how much is it going to spit out and how much does that cost to operate the machine? That's mm -hmm. a good good analogy there. So going back to what you were talking about, the durability of, of a moat and the ability to continuously generate returns that exceed the cost of capital, do you think that looking for durability is more important than looking for simply high levels of returns on invested capital? I think that ones that have the durability that maybe have a lower spread sometimes fly under the radar of the market. So if a company is out there posting 75% returns on invested capital, people are going to take notice of that. <laughs> Competitors are going to find every way they possibly can to go after that. Now, on the other hand, a company that has, say, 15% cost of cap, uh, return on invested capital, those might not be worth competing against. Because if you enter the market, it could drag down the returns for everybody and everyone's just sitting there at cost of capital, which is not 
value enhancing for anybody. And that's really where efficient scale comes to play. And when I covered the packaging companies at Morningstar, the beverage can companies like Ball and Crown fit this mold really well, where they had in any given city, they might have one canning facility each. And if a fourth party came in or a third party came in, it would reduce the return on investment capital for everybody. And there was no economic incentive to join. That's the efficient scale mode. So I think that certain companies, again, fly under the radar because the returns on investment capital aren't going to move the needle. So if you're a larger company, it's not enough. If you're a larger company generating 20, 30%, you're not going to buy or compete against a company that's doing 12%. And if you're a small company or startup, that's not really a super attractive business to get in. So trying to find those ones with durability, I think I mentioned Fastenal earlier, those are the ones that I think can fly under the radar for a long time. And the market just continually has to adjust its estimates of future cash flow because they just continue to produce year after year and beat that fate I talked about earlier. Gotcha. That's a good way to think about it. So going to valuation. So when you're looking for these companies that have durable moats and they can exceed their returns on capital, how do you think about valuing these companies? Are you like a multiple guy? Do you do discounted cash flow analysis? How do you think about valuation? I'm very much a discounted cash flow investor. That's not to say that I don't consider multiples, but I've come to find that and I've come to learn that a multiple is just a shorthand for a DCF. So mm -hmm. it's implicit. I would rather personally have the explicit forecast and make adjustments to see, okay, here's what I'm not getting. Here's where I'm right, or here's where things are working in my favor. And rather than try to say, well, it's a 15 PE, it should be 20. That's a shorthand and it can work. I've invested on, on multiples before that at least got me interested in the name. But I think ultimately for a long-term investor, you want to have that cash flow forecast and be able to say, find some key performance indicators, KPIs or, or metrics that you can use to measure the company's progress. So if it's a restaurant chain, for example, you would look at revenue per store and you would look at operating expenses per store and you would look at restaurant level margins and you would forecast, right? And say, here's what I think the stores are going to be doing in 10 years. Here's how many stores I think they're going to have. And that's your buildup to your revenue. It can also build up to your expense line. Having those unit economic trackers is really an important process to a DCF because it's very easy. I made this mistake where if you forecast the top line first, you go and do the unit level economics and you go, wow, I'm just way off. Like that just doesn't make any sense. Like there's no way that this restaurant's going to be selling twice as many hamburgers <laughs> in 10 years per store than it is now, that kind of thing. So I think you have to really understand at a unit level what your growth rates are implying. And so I prefer to build up from the ground rather than make a growth forecast and then figure out what it is on the ground. I think that makes more sense. And so that's how I think about valuation. I think, again, using Michael Mobison as an example, his, his book with Al Rappaport, Expectations Investing, is a really important one for investors to read because the thesis is that the market price is just a DCF model, right? It's implying a certain outcome for the business. And to the extent that you can figure out what the market is pricing in, in terms of sales, NOPAT, invested capital, you can figure out whether or not you disagree with that and say, well, they're just the market right now is, especially in a sell off, this might happen where the market's expecting the company to outer its cost of capital for the next five years. And you're thinking, wow, this company's moat is going to allow it to do it for 15, 20 years. Well, just on that observation alone, 
that's an opportunity to invest. I think that's one benefit of learning how to do that expectations investing is try to figure out, okay, here's what the market's pricing in and what does that mean? And do I agree with this or not? And so I think that's an important thing for investors to try to, but generally speaking, investors have a better chance of identifying a wonderful business than they do to absolutely nail valuation. <laughs> I think valuation is very difficult. It's a long feedback loop. doesn't mean you don't do it. You do do it in the process. It helps you understand if you have a wonderful business. But uh, you know, Phil Fisher has a line in his book, Common Stocks on Common Profits, that you have much better odds. So the odds are in your favor of just finding a great business and holding. But I think the key to that, one thing I would add is to make sure you're paying a good price for it because not every great business is a great investment. So you have to find a reasonable price, but great businesses find a way of surprising you to the upside. And if you look at Amazon, for example, in 1997, or even as late as like 2003, people weren't factoring in things like Prime or AWS. And it was born of an absolutely fantastic business. And those are some of those upside surprises that you'll find with great businesses. And is that somewhat hindsight bias? Well, of course, Amazon's a great business. You look back at it. But I think even back in the early days, if you're reading Bezos's letter, you see something's going on there. And it's funny, my wife wanted to invest in Amazon when it was $30 a share back in 2006 or seven. And I was like, that just looks so expensive. And <laughs> that's what we all say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then 10 years later, I finally was like, all right, we'll buy some. I think it was $300. My wife is not a professional investor, but she was aware that just as a consumer, just from her wallet share, just like our spending, where her mindset was when she was thinking about, okay, I need to buy something. Where do I go for it? But Amazon was taking a bigger piece of that. I think that's an interesting way of thinking about relevance and companies that are doing something great is how much mind share they're taking, how much wallet share they're taking over time. If you're not a consumer, maybe look at their customers. Are they spending more per customer or whatever? I think that's an important way to do it. So I think that's a key part of it is thinking about great businesses can surprise to the upside and mediocre companies will usually disappoint you at some point. To me, that's why I like to focus on those companies that I think are absolutely wonderful and doing great things beyond their product and service, especially if they're doing something great in the community, doing something great with their employees. Those are all positive signs for me because I think those are very positive places to create things that were not expected in the past. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I've had experiences on both sides of that. So bad businesses do tend to disappoint you. <laughs> Good mm. businesses do tend to surprise you with what that's they right. can accomplish. So yeah, I completely agree with that. So how do you think about position sizing and portfolio construction? So identifying good stocks is one part of the equation. How do you think about how you position your overall portfolio? For me personally, and I do think it is personal choice for everyone because position sizing can augment or be a detriment to your returns. You know, if you put your most money and your favorite ideas and they don't turn out to be very good and your bottom names in your portfolio do really well, that's probably a sign that allocation is not your strong suit. And that's fine. You can be a great stock picker. But I think if you're more interested in the stock picking side, equal weight is the better approach because at least you're minimizing or reducing the risk that you're misallocating the portfolio. And so for me personally, I own about 15 to 20 companies in my portfolio at a given time. And I have a few that are on the large side, but these are companies that I'm sleeping at night. So the top of my portfolio is like Costco and Berkshire Hathaway. Those are my personal largest holdings. And they're about high single digit. I think Costco is 10% now. Pretty unassailable moats there. So Yeah. And so those are companies where 
again, they're great businesses. Berkshire obviously is diversified. So I've referred to Berkshire in the past as a tax efficient S&P 500 tracker, because that's basically you know, what it is at this point is it's so diversified. It doesn't pay a dividend, so you don't have to worry about the tax drag from that. Those are names I don't lose sleep over at night. And so I think that's one way to think about position sizing. And I think there's a tendency in our industry to really concentrate in a couple of names, because if you're right, that's a great way to make your name and very quickly. This is a long game, right? And people who can do it, congratulations. And there's, I'm not taking anything away from that. People who make those bets definitely deserve the praise they get for being right. But for me personally, I had taken a more diversified approach and that suits my personality very well. And I'm looking to say in the NCAA March Madness, survive in advance, right? Things happen. I've been investing for over 20 years now and I've seen crisis. I've seen individual companies fall apart and I've seen the downside of those things and I've taken count of them and how I felt personally and how best to structure my portfolio to survive those moments and continue on because in order to compound capital, you have to have capital, right? Yeah. And someone I think about is Ackman. So he did a lot of hardcore concentration in the 2000s. It worked. He got famous accumulated a lot of AUM. But then there's the other side to that. You could have a huge concentrated position in something that doesn't work out. And it's difficult to know and size those positions. Right. It's personality type. And I think Ackman has that personality type and he can do it. His clients love it. And that's fine. It works for him. For me personally, it's a bit more diversified. I take delight in seeing how all the companies work together too, thinking about each role that they play in the portfolio and trying to figure out the best way to arrange them to generate the type of returns that I'm hoping for. That's just how I approach it. And again, I think position sizing is a very personal decision. One approach that I use to some extent is to concentrate the portfolio and then to have kind of a smaller positions that were either once large positions in my portfolio and were sold off due to valuation or just names I'm really interested in. And I want to have some skin in the game to keep tracking them. I think that's a, another way to do it. So I think, again, it comes down to each person's personality and what they're looking to do. Gotcha. And how do you think about when to sell a stock? So there's multiple schools of thought here. You should rebalance. You should be a never sell investor. You should let your winners run. What's your philosophy on selling? Yeah, it's, that's interesting you ask because I'm working on something that right now. And I think selling is the hardest part of the job. It's the least enjoyable part of the job for sure. It's either you're selling for a profit and you start to wonder, am I selling too soon? Or are you selling at a loss and going, ah, like, am I giving up too soon? Or when you sell, it's usually like a feeling of regret, right? What am I going to miss? Am I missing the big opportunity? And I think the ideal situation is you don't have to, or that you trim, but hold on to the position. But certainly there are times where you do have to exit. And typically, I think the best way for most quality-minded investors to think about selling is if you see a negative moat trend occurring. If you start to see the competitive advantages start to slip, that's going to lead to a reevaluation of your fair value. That's going to lead to a reevaluation of management. So at that point, you start to worry that you're hanging on too long. And the data show that if you look at some of the worst performing cohorts over rolling periods, it's companies that started out in the high returns on invested capital bucket and ended up in the lowest end. Quality traps, as I call them, are very painful because the market was expecting great things and it was trading at 30 times and now it's down to 15. And so you had that huge multiple haircut right away in addition to whatever happened on the fundamental side. So I think there are times to sell. 
And I think it's when you've lost confidence because you can't build conviction in a moment when things aren't going well. You have to understand what you're looking for and have some sell decisions written down when you invest, because it's so easy, so easy to in the moment say, oh, well, they're trying to do this. So I'm just going to hang on to it. When you initially bought it, you said, I'm never going to sell it as soon as they do that. It's so easy to rationalize in the moment what management's doing. And I think that there are times where you just have to sell and say, look, this might be the wrong time to sell and things might go great after this, but I can't abide by this anymore. I have to get out and you have to be able to live with the potential for the stock to, to go higher after that. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're pretty aligned there. So let's talk about some of your holdings and companies that you've profiled. So one that I looked at recently was a company I really liked was Old Dominion Freight Line. They're a great company. They have some cost advantages. It seems like they have a moat in the less than truckload shipments due to the network that they've built up. So what is your opinion on Old Dominion Freight Line? Sure. Old Dominion is a name I've followed for a long time. I don't presently own them, but Again, going back to that cultural advantage, that's really played a huge role in Old Dominion success. And from all the experts I've talked to in the industry, Old Dominion's just set apart from the group because they have their non-union. And from what I understand, from what I've learned, this isn't my personal opinion, that the non-union employees tend to work a lot more efficiently inside the service center. So in the LTL space, trucks bring packages from all different parts and they combine them and then they break them down again and then send them back out. So what happens inside the service network or service centers matters quite a bit because you don't want anything breaking. You don't want things getting lost. And from what I understand, the old Dominion employees have this culture of don't break anything and be extremely efficient in moving things in and out. And what I've heard is that the non-union employees are incentivized better to work. And I think you can see a result of that with the yellow bankruptcy, which was heavily unionized. And not to say those guys don't work hard, you have anything like that. I'm just saying that from what I've learned, Old Dominion's performance inside the service centers from their, their drivers, everybody else just works extra hard and they work extremely efficiently and do a really good job. And so that turns into a service benefit. So they're customers on both ends. So you have the people who are shipping items and people who are receiving items see the benefit and they'll use Old Dominion more frequently. In fact, Old Dominion is at many retailers, uh, one of the favored shippers. And so what I came to learn was that if I was shipping an item to a large retailer, for example, and it arrived broken, I pay the cost. It's not the retailer. And unless I choose to use one of their preferred shippers, that's on me. So if one of their preferred shippers messes up, that's not going to be on me. But if I use somebody that was just the cheapest, for example, and it breaks, then it's on me. So Old Dominion has built a relationship with both parts of the network and continue to strengthen that network over time. And you can see the results. I mean, there's a chart on my write-up about network effects showing how Old Dominion just gains so many shipments per day relative to the rest of the pack that you can really see the cultural difference show up in those results. Yeah, I agree. They're a great company. The union thing is interesting. I know that they had some run-ins with unions in the 40s and basically like won some struggles against their union. So it's kind of funny that something that happened 80 years ago still reverberates to this day as an advantage for the company. Yeah, that happened with NVR too. So NVR went bankrupt in the early 90s. NVR is a home builder. And mm -hmm. they had a similar approach to a lot of the home builders, which is to do land development and home building. And they realized that 
the land development process was not their strong suit, and that's what got them in trouble. And so after they emerged from bankruptcy, they focused completely on optioning their land. And so they had this land light strategy. It's amazing how things that happened 30, 40, 50 years ago, like you're saying, reverberate in the company's strategy to this day. Yeah, I've looked at it and their land strategy makes a ton of sense. What I wasn't able to completely wrap my head around was why all the other home builders haven't copied that. What I settled in was maybe that the land option contracts are too expensive in the boom times when things are going well and it's almost like insurance when things go bad. How do you think about that? There are cycles in which options make more sense than others, different points in the cycle, I should say. But the other home builders have increasingly used options. But what I come to learn is that land development is really in their DNA. A lot of these companies, going back to their history, right? The reason that they were able to get past exit velocity, so to say, and get into the next level of home building was because they had were successful with land development. And so land development is part of their DNA. They value that part of the business. So they can't shake it completely. And that's why really, I think Dream Home Finders is a newer land, land uh, home builder and they're using option only. So I think if all the home builders were to start over again today, they might have more of a option only focus, but I'm not sure what that would do to the market either because that would, <laughs> that would throw things off if everything was optioned. There are different parts of the cycle where land owners value the options more than others, which is probably why different times MVR is more successful with optioning land than others. Yeah. And it really saved them during the housing bust in 07 to 09. Like you look at their results versus all of the other home builders. They really stood out as having pretty decent results through that whole period and were able to survive. So yeah, you're right. That lesson that they learned 30 years ago still reverberates to this day. Yep. That makes them very, again, going back to durability, extremely durable business. They will be the last home builder standing in a downturn because they have that huge net cash position as well. Yeah, absolutely. So another company you've talked about near and dear to my heart, Nintendo. I grew up with Zelda and Link, Simon Belmont. So yeah. <laughs> what's the investment case for Nintendo? So Nintendo is just under monetized asset is the short answer. And management has started the process. It's been a low, slow slog <laughs> to get them to better monetize their IP, which is so incredibly valuable. And we both said that we played Nintendo growing up and I have young kids of my own and I passed that interest in Nintendo down to them. And that's something that we communicate on. And so I think it's a really interesting turning point in any type of IP is when it becomes nostalgia and it starts to be able to be transferred across generations. And you can think about sports teams, for example, you can have a grandparent and a grandchild talking about Cincinnati Reds because they both follow it. They may not have anything else in common, but they've got Cincinnati Reds. And I think the same thing is true with Nintendo and will continue to be that. So I would expect that my children will play Nintendo games with their children and that the addressable market for Nintendo players will widen. So when we were growing up, no one above 40 was playing Nintendo. But by the right. time we retire, we'll be playing Nintendo. And so the, the age addressable market just continues to get wider. And Nintendo's done a, a much better job in the past couple of years, especially with this generation with Switch, of having that individual relationship with its customers, where in the past they couldn't. So when Wii was a huge hit, stock rallied, no, it wasn't, it crashed because they lost all those customers and they have to rewind them again the next cycle. And what if the next console isn't a hit? They're like a couple of years behind and they're stagnant for five, six years. But 
they've really used the Nintendo accounts and Nintendo Switch Online to connect with individual players in a way they haven't in the past. So whenever the next console comes, I fully expect that I'll be able to just put all my information in the next one. And it's got my playing history. It's got everything else all ready to go. So I don't want to make too much of the Apple comparison. I know there have been comparisons made to that, that there's some truth to that, but I don't think it's going to be like just a simple upgrade cycle like you might have with smartphones. I do believe that there will be much more consistency, similar to like your Apple login, where you get a new phone and just populates with all your information. So I would expect that Nintendo will do the same. And you can see them loosening the strings a little bit with using their IP in new ways, whether that's the theme parks, whether that's the movie. And all that comes back, it just generates more interest in playing the games. And my daughter, who's now six, when we went to see the Mario movie, and as soon as the movie ended, she turned to me and went, can we go home and play a Mario Kart? (laughs) And that's exactly what Nintendo wants, is they want people to engage with their IP in new ways, then go buy the game because that's where they're going to make their money. So I think that in in terms of movies, there's a huge runway ahead of them. They could pull so many threads. There's been rumors, I'm not sure if it's been confirmed yet, about a Zelda movie, and that could be more dramatic, right? And the Mario movie is more lighthearted for kids. So there's a couple different ways, avenues that could go down. And I think Nintendo is very, very careful about managing their IP. I've talked about in the past that when Brazil Olympics uh, in 2016, I guess, when they handed the torch to Shinzo Abe, the Japanese prime minister, he came dressed as Mario. So he is a national. So Nintendo, wow. <laughs> is, is, so Nintendo is a cultural icon. So they manage it for the long term. And that can sometimes be a negative, right? If they're too conservative. But on the other hand, you do have that peace of mind that they are managing it to be durable for the long term. And so as a long-term investor, you should take some comfort in that. They're not going to make any moves that they believe will jeopardize the brand. Now, they might jeopardize the brand by taking something that are not being aggressive enough, but I do think that they have that mindset that they want to be very careful with how they're monetizing their IP and making sure that it's there 10, 20, 30 years from now. Cool. Yeah, and I think the movies are a huge opportunity for them. I think they probably had a bad taste in their mouth after the flop that they made in the early 90s when we were kids with the the original Mario movie, which was pretty bad. But yeah, the new one's been a huge hit. It's made a billion dollars. So, And I'd love to see a live-action Zelda movie. They could do something that's kind of like a Lord of the Rings-style movie that could be really good. Yeah, and I fully expect within the next 10 years that they will be making their universes more immersive in the gameplay themselves, whether it be Hyrule with Zelda or Mario, and just being able to immerse yourself more into it, whether it's virtual reality or augmented reality or some combination of both. I think there will be ways for them to make the experience more immersive because they're works of art. And that's something that I've really come to appreciate with following Nintendo over the past couple of years is the power of art and design, ensuring you put out a quality product. They have that great line where a bad game that's released early is bad forever. A great game that's released late is still great, right? So I think that's key. You want to make sure you're putting out great product. And if it's past a couple of weeks or past a couple of months and it's delayed, then it'll be a great product in that time. So make sure that you're putting out great product and thinking through design and making sure that you're delighting your customers. 
Yeah, they definitely seem to have prioritized that. I almost think of a Nintendo almost like it could be like Disney. I think the IP is that valuable where I think Mario is just as iconic as Mickey Mouse. And they could probably parlay that into something much bigger than what they're doing today. Yeah, that's possible. I think that because it's a video game, the users can manipulate it and put themselves in the shoes of the character more so than, say, Mickey Mouse, where it's kind of a one-way content experience. So I think that's certainly valuable. I don't know that I would compare with Disney business. I would definitely make the comparison between the IP. I think Buffett has a great line from about Disney from, I think, the late 60s, where he's like, it's an oil well, where the oil keeps seeping back into the ground. They can come back and release a Mickey movie every 20 years and get the pumps priming again. And so I think Mario does something similar. And one of Nintendo's key advantages in the video game space is that they're able to put out a Mario game, sell 10 million copies without having to do very low uncertainty, right? Very low marketing. Whereas if trying to do a a new game today, you really have two options. You can go all in and do a AAA game, have a huge budget and try to hope for a big score, or you can try to create a small indie game that hopefully catches on, but it's like a lottery ticket. So Nintendo's kind of sitting in the middle. We're just going to produce great games and We have this IP now that we can just put out a Mario game and sell 10, 20, 30 million copies and with very low uncertainty. So I think it's a real advantage. Super interesting. Yeah, I need to do more work on that stock. It definitely sounds like a high quality business and opportunity. So before we wrap up, do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? It's an interesting time to be an investor. There's a lot going on. And from the macro side, no one has lived through these interest rates in the past 40 years. I think fund managers, we talked about this when the rates started going up. So if you're a fund manager today, the odds are you were not running money back in the early 80s when interest rates were double digits. And so this is a new landscape for just about every professional investor thinking through interest rates. So to the extent that you can go back and read some of the commentaries from fund managers back in that time period, I think that's a useful exercise. You can go to your local library, for example, and read the financial magazines, business magazines from the 70s or early 80s and just see what people are talking about. Because I think it's not necessarily a past is, is going to happen again exactly the way it is, but just look at what how people were thinking, how they were talking. And so for being a history major, that's something I like to do is go back and see what people were saying in a similar situation as in the past. I found that very helpful when there's been a crisis or something. You know, what were people saying in 1929? What were people saying or whatever the situation is, right? Try to understand what the mentality is because situations change, but humans don't change. So the extent that we can understand human nature as investors, the better we can be. That's great advice. And what are the best ways to learn about you and read your content? Sure. So my blog is flyoverstocks.com. I'm on Twitter and threads at Todd Wenning. Those are probably the best places to reach me. My messages are open, so you can always reach out to me. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.